Welcome to Future Forecast, the podcast where we discuss leadership, technology, and sustainability with some of the most influential leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world. We explore their insights into some of the most exciting trends and topics of our time and learn from their personal experiences. I'm your host, Isabel Ringness, and today we'll be talking about innovation in legacy organizations and what your company should be thinking about in order to not only survive, but thrive in the future. We're talking to Chris Estegor, who is the co-founder and chief learning and innovation officer at Singularity U Nordic, a country partner of Singularity University. Singularity University is a global learning and innovation community located at NASA Ames Research Center in Silicon Valley, using exponential technologies to tackle the world's biggest challenges and build a better future for all. I've had the pleasure of knowing Chris for many years, and now I have the pleasure of being his colleague as faculty at SU. Chris, thank you so much for joining Future Forecast. Thank you very much for having me. To warm things up, uh, we like to start with uh, two questions. And first, uh, I want our listeners to know, what is your morning routine? Right. Yeah, well, uh, my, my morning routine recently changed significantly because I just became a father. I know. Congratulations. Thank you very much. So um, so now my morning routine is a little bit different than, uh, than what it's been for a long while. But I have actually just simultaneously with waiting for my uh, baby to arrive, I've been writing a book, which we're going to talk about today. And so that means that my morning routine for a very long time, like the last year or so, has more or less been getting up at 5.36 in the morning to uh, settle down and have a couple of hours of quiet time for writing. Wow, that's very disciplined of you. <laughs> it's the only way I could make it happen. So, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, that's uh, inspirational. Um, why don't you tell us when the last time you stepped out of your comfort zone was? Well, as I just said, I, I just became a father <laughs> and it's the first <laughs> time in a it's the so I have older children, but it's the first time in ten, in twelve years. There. So uh, so that's certainly a little bit out of my comfort zone, but also very very exciting. Oh my God! Congratulations! It's fantastic. But let's um, let's dive into your field of expertise. And today we're going to be focusing on what our listeners might be able to learn more in depth from your book uh, being published next year: How to Digitize a Cup of Coffee. But uh, first, I want you to help us gain a kind of common reference for what we're discussing today, namely innovation. Uh, it seems like everyone is throwing this word around uh, everywhere these days. But in your words, who obviously have a lot of knowledge on it, what is innovation? Yeah, that, that's actually one of the reasons that I decided to write this book, because uh, as you say, everybody's talking about innovation, but it's very, very difficult to figure out exactly what people mean when they when they talk about innovation and and and, and it tends to remain too abstract in my opinion uh, a term so innovation is the act of creating something new and materializing it uh, that can be market oriented but doesn't necessarily have to be it can also be in regards to internal processes and production methods and that's sort of the overarching uh, definition in my opinion and then uh, what i dive into and 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 have uh, is the, is the majority of what the book is about is that um, I like to say innovation is not one thing. Innovation is multiple things. And particularly when we talk about legacy organizations, the large, well-established uh, companies or larger established companies, then uh, what, what makes innovation difficult uh, and more difficult than it is for startups, for instance, is that 
larger established companies, they need to innovate in multiple tracks at the same time. That's what I call optimizing, augmenting, and mutating innovation. And they have different characteristics and different definitions. And uh, and how would you explain what the three types of innovation mean, the optimizing and the augmenting and the mutating innovation? Yeah, I mean, so so uh, I, I often sort of, when I do talks around this for for the large established companies, I, I, I like to say, you know, that when it comes to large companies and innovation, there really is good news and bad news. And uh, the bad news is that innovation is much, much harder for the large established company than it is for a startup. But the good news is that no one really has a better chance of uh, succeeding than the large established companies do because they have so many resources. They have customers, they have uh, data, they have money, they have infrastructure, they have talent, they have the works that most startups are actually struggling with. So it really comes down to design. And uh, I find it helpful. And in doing research for this book, what what struck me is that um, there really is a necessity to, to look at uh, what companies do depending on how close to the core the innovations that they are, are trying to create are and what the scope is of what they're trying to achieve. So the, the first track is optimizing innovation, which is uh, the metaphorical extra blade on the race up. So this is what the uh, legacy company is world champion at. This is what they do every single day. It's important to note here that there's there's no bad type of innovation, if you like. It's not like one one type of innovation is is better than the other. They're all important, but they have different scopes. And, and um, so, so that is what one needs to keep in mind. But the optimizing innovation is the continuous optimizations of existing processes, existing products and services. Uh, as I said, the legacy companies are world champions at this. They need to continue to do it because it's what pay this, pays the rent and it's most likely what, uh, what they are continuing to optimize on is what legitimizes them in the marketplace today. The issue is that it's only for the short term because what happens, of course, is if we stay in the the metaphor of the racer here is that, you know, you see the, the car racer companies going out and say, now our racers not only have three blades, now they have four blades. And then a year later, they come back and say, now they not only have four blades, they have five blades. But uh, as the blades sort of pile on, they also become less valuable. And that means that uh, the primary innovation winds up being the marketing efforts that these companies make. And that is really a sign that innovation power is dropping in a company if marketing is the most important innovation uh, initiatives that they take. So therefore, these optimizing innovations are only for the short term. And thus, companies need to also do augmenting innovation, which is where you upgrade the core of the organization. That is where most digital transformation projects live that we see so many companies uh, embarking upon now. So that is going from analog to digital or saying we need to be mobile first or we need to be AI first that you hear a lot of companies talk about now. And finally, you have mutating innovations, which is where you not only upgrade the core, but you challenge the core. So this is where you see the most radical types of experiments that uh, also have the significant design principles attached to them that these more radical experiments that may mutate the core of what the organization is today in the long term most likely will only succeed if you also run these experiments away from the core, like physically away from the core of the organization.
Wow. Uh, thank you for clarifying uh, that. Uh, so I guess these are all kinds of innovations that companies are or should be working on. But then the mutating innovation is kind of the innovation that everyone is dreaming of or talking about, at least, because that's kind of what the future requires of us, right? Yeah, that's right. So that's the long, long-term long uh, perspective. This is where you, uh, you have a, a much longer-term view. This is where you, your experiments are more radical. This is where you don't really know what you're embarking upon, and thus, uh, which makes it highly experimental. But this is where you really get the chance to learn about new technologies, about new business models, and the potentials that they may have. Exactly. And and you've called the book How to Digitize a Cup of Coffee, which I just, I love that title. But what do you mean by that? Yeah. Um, I mean, so when thinking about sort of what is the core message here in this book, and, and uh, there are probably a couple of core messages, but the reason that I, I sort of settled on that title was um, I mean, that's, so there are three parts to the book, and the first part of the book is uh, is called Sharpen the Axe. And this is really about uh, the the analysis and the research that needs to go into uh, being able to make proper strategy. And uh, and you if you you cannot innovate in, uh, unless you make proper strategy. And and what I find is that there are a number of significant questions that companies need to ask themselves. And uh, some of these questions are entirely new, and some of these questions are very old, and questions that companies have been asking themselves for many years, but they need to do that with a new set of lenses. Those are questions such as, which industry am I in? Uh, this is questions such as, who are my competitors? And um, the, the answers to those questions are very different now, if, uh, if, if you look at them properly, because of the accelerating pace of, of technological development because of the convergence of technologies and the convergence of industries, which makes everything much more complex, but really also opens up for much more potential. And so uh, so, so I, when exploring the question of uh, who are my competitors, uh, it dawned upon me that what, what happens in, in most companies really is that sort of Mapping a competitive landscape is something that you learn uh, like day one on, in business school. But what happens is that most companies, uh, they tend to only map it out in maybe the first, second or third degree of, of where their core is or their core value offerings are. And this means that they only really uncover the obvious. So, uh, and, and, um, and uh, what I found was uh, that if, if you sort of explore the question in enough degrees, then you wind out actually where it makes sense to start asking questions such as how to digitize a cup of coffee, which may sound absurd on, on the surface, but actually can provide a really interesting value in terms of understanding the threats out there, but also the opportunities. Exactly. And, and I'm cheating a little bit because uh, I had the pleasure of hearing your talk a few weeks ago at uh, SU. Um, and you had a wonderful example of how uh, organizations perhaps aren't always able to identify their competitors, just like you were talking about. And then I remember that you used the exact uh, coffee example, which I mean, everyone in the Nordics, at least, have a very close relation to. Uh, could you explain the thought process of how a coffee brand such as Frile or any other would uh, go forward to identify their competitors? Yeah, so so we came up with this uh, 
this thought game called Six Degrees of Competition. And uh, so uh, kicking off what I, what I just talked a little bit about, if you sort of take your core value offering, and let's say in this case it's coffee and it's Friele, and uh, you say, what are, if you, if you map the, the competition for the core value offering of 400 grams of that particular coffee brand that you can buy in the supermarket, and you look at who's the, who's the first degree of competition, the second degree, the third degree of competition, and map it all the way out to the sixth degree of competition, then something interesting starts to happen. And um, so, so the coffee example goes to say that, so you have these, this brand, Friele, 400 grams of uh, ground coffee you can buy in the, in the supermarket. Now, what's the obvious first degree of competition for that? That, of course, is some other branded coffee, 400 grams ground coffee of uh, Givalia or whatever it might be. There are literally uh, dozens, if not hundreds, of other coffee brands that offer more or less the same. Right? So that's first degree, pretty, pretty basic, pretty simple. What, what could be then second degree of competition? Well, that might be tea, right? Because if you, if you drink a cup of tea, well, then you don't drink a cup of coffee at that same time. Uh, what could be a third degree of competition? Well, that might be uh, Coca-Cola or a Red Bull. So it's not hot, uh, it's cold, but it's loaded with caffeine. And in many ways, it provides the same value that coffee does, which is the value of giving you energy or enabling you to focus or stay up later or work more hours, etc. It's one of the core reasons that a lot of us use coffee. So that's the third degree. Now, what is then the fourth degree of competition? Well, Starbucks, for instance, right? If you go to Starbucks and you buy a cup of coffee there, then uh, you don't go home and uh, brew your own cup of coffee, right? So that's a direct comp comp uh, competition as well. And um, if you then move further away from that, then it starts to get more tricky. And I've asked, this, I've, I've asked these questions in, in hundreds of, uh, of talks now to, uh, to audiences around the world. And uh, once we get beyond the fourth degree of competition, things really start to become much more complicated. So, so typically when I ask, what's the fifth degree of competition to these 400 grams of coffee you can buy at the supermarket, then it's, uh, it, it, there's more silence in the audience and people really struggling with this. And when I did the thought experiment with myself, what, what dawned upon me that, uh, you know, a fifth degree of competition might actually be uh, something called the muse. And the muse is a meditation device. And it's a, it's, a, it's a device that you put on your forehead and behind your ears and um, you turn it on. And what it does is that it can read your brain waves. So it can literally read whether your brain is in beta, alpha, or theta state, which means how relaxed you are. Uh, and um, at the same time, you put on uh, headphones when you use this device and you have an app. And in the app, you can choose different soundscapes. Uh, so you can choose the jungle or the beach or the city. And uh, so you hear noises, you hear wind blowing, etc. And depending on what state your brain is in whether it's in beta alpha or theta state the noises will be different so the closer you get to theta state which is the most relaxed state the less noise there will be the less wind there will be and if you really sort of hit the sweet spot then you'll hear birds tweet and um, that's what you're going for when you use this meditation device. So you collect bird tweets and thus it has a gamification element as well so it's a it's a gamified meditation uh, device in a very convenient way that sort of supports you and helps you meditate. And what, what struck me was that I wonder what, and there are multiple different types of uh, products similar to the Muse 
either already on the market or on the way on the market. And these are sort of versions 1.0, right? And uh, so it struck me like, I mean, what might a device like a Muse do to your coffee cup number three, four, five, or six during the day? When it's three o'clock in the afternoon, you're getting tired and you're thinking, should I eat that cake? Should I grab that extra coffee to get the last couple of hours of work done? Or maybe you take your meditation device, your Muse, and spend seven minutes with it. And that will then literally give you uh, the extra energy that you need to uh, to finish your work and uh, and finally there's the sixth degree uh, which is then uh, now what comes after the muse in terms of potential disruptive forces out there that may you know uh, be a challenger for your 400 grams of uh, coffee that you sell in the supermarket and uh, an answer to that may be autonomous vehicles um, and and one reason may be because if you have autonomous vehicles and you no longer need to drive yourself, then you know, don't need to drink the coffee to you know, stay alert. But maybe you'll just drink it for social purposes. But uh, what is perhaps more interesting is that a lot of coffee brands, Starbucks also, uh, also brands like Red Bull, they sell something between 20 and 40% of their products at gas stations. So once autonomous vehicles are significant in our everyday lives, which will happen in a very few years, and we no longer need to go to gas stations, well, that means that the value chain and the supply chain for a lot of brands will change dramatically. And the question, of course, becomes, do they sit in the boardrooms of the coffee brands? And I'm just using coffee as an example here. It could be, you know, put in your value offering, whatever it is. Do they sit in the boardrooms or the research departments or R&D facilities of legacy brands and go to the fifth and sixth degree of competition to really understand the threats and the potentials out there? And in most cases, the answer is no. And my argument is that in a world of accelerating change, we really need to start exploring the fifth, sixth, maybe even seventh and eighth degree of competition to truly understand what is out there, what may disrupt us, but also where we might be going in the longer term with our companies. Wow, I think this is absolutely fascinating. I mean, when you when you laid this forward in the talk, I mean, going from a simple cup of coffee to thinking that a potential challenger could be a self-driving car, it's just it's so far out there. But then when you lay it out, it actually does make sense. But in your talk, I do remember that you said that managers or leaders generally often want to be innovative and they want to think new, but then they have a tendency to imply that let's pick the innovative idea with the greatest potential to keep things exactly as they are. And I think a lot of people um, recognize this quote or this uh, double meaning. But what, what do you mean by that when you when you write that? Yeah, I mean, so that quote references what we sometimes call innovation theater. And innovation theater, that is when you sort of you say the right things and you do the right things, uh, but only on the surface. It doesn't really materialize into substantial innovation. And that happens all the time. And it, it's not out of bad intent. Uh, but what happens is that we, in our organizations, we have this immune system. It's a, it's a terminology that that most listeners are probably familiar with. It's very popular in Silicon Valley. And, and typically when the immune system is mentioned, it's, what is implied is legacy companies and their lack of innovation power. And, um, and we all have immune systems. All our, all our organizations have immune systems. Immune, just like the human body's immune system, immune systems are uh, incredibly important, right? Because they protect you uh, for, for uh, challenges from the outside that, that may uh, be harmful to you. 
But uh, at the same time that they protect you, they are also potential barriers for you. And again, particularly when we talk about organizations and we talk about innovation and uh, a world where technology develops exponentially and the pace is accelerating, then immune systems may very well be a huge barrier for companies. And um, and and that what what happens is then that uh, a lot of companies they kickstart certain innovation initiatives back to to your initial question but they never really materialize in anything substantial they remain innovation theater and and it's because really i think that uh, most companies don't think ambitiously and strategically enough about their innovation initiatives and they also don't truly understand the barriers that make uh, hold them back uh, in in order to be able to design properly for their innovation initiatives and that means that they need to understand these immune systems. And, and I say immune systems in the plural because typically when we hear people talk about immune systems, they, there's just a lot of finger pointing going on really. So it's top management pointing fingers at middle management saying, yeah, well, they don't, wanna, they don't want change, right? Some, in some circles, the middle management is also referred to as the permafrost of the organization, right? So it's really like it's middle management who don't want change. But middle management then point to the employees and say, well, it's the employees who don't want change. And then the employees, they point back to middle management. Um, but all of that finger pointing really is, is, is not, uh, I mean, of course, there's human resistance to change. It is a real thing. But, uh, but there really is not just one immune system, which is the individual human immune system. There, there really is uh, two more layers to it. There's also an organizational immune system and there's a societal immune system. And, um, and companies need to understand that and top managers need to understand that in order to enable their companies to be truly innovative. And, and that means that, yes, we need to understand a personal individual barriers towards change and how to design against that. One of the core issues here is uh, the capability deficits that exist in companies. Uh, there's a recent uh, global study, I think it's PwC, that has more than 2,000 global managers' uh, questions around innovation. And 76% of them said they didn't have the capabilities in the organization needed uh, to, uh, to move into the future. So that's, that's a huge problem. That's why uh, continuous lifelong learning and the hunt for talent is, is perhaps the most important endeavors that large companies need to undertake in these years. Uh, but, but the individual in immune system is one thing, and the other thing is the organizational immune system, which is the system. And what happens is that if you take the system and put it up against the individual, the human being, then the system will always win. So it doesn't really matter what we tell our people that uh, we need to embark upon a transformation journey, we need to be innovative, we need to disrupt ourselves, etc. Whatever language we choose, mm. it doesn't matter if we don't change the system at the same time. And that is uh, much harder, really, and uh, some place where many managers don't spend enough attention. So the organizational immune system, that has to do with, for instance, our KPIs and reward systems. What are we actually measuring? What are we actually rewarding in our organizations? And what very often happens is that we kickstart large innovation or transformation projects in our organizations, but our KPIs remain the same. And that means that our KPIs remain focused on everyday business, the optimizing innovations that I mentioned earlier, the extra blades on the razor. 
But if we are at the same time asking our organization to change dramatically, well, uh, then our KPIs need to change with them. Otherwise, we have what is uh, in game theory known as a construction problem. Uh, There's no incentive for the individual to actually do what is being said because in the end what is being measured and rewarded is the status quo. That's a huge big problem in most companies. Yeah, that's very uh, interesting because I think a lot of people think, well, at, at least in Silicon Valley, the mantra goes that we should have this massive transformational purpose, right? Where if you kind of point to the larger picture that we're all contributing against, people will want to innovate. But then again, you have that uh, other force, which is our kind of inherent um, psychological need to, to to keep things the way they are because we we like what we know and what we know is safe. Um and then kind of identifying where that immune systems or the different immune systems are and how they're uh, inhibiting us from truly innovating is, is I think, a lot harder than maybe, uh, maybe a lot of people understand. But you said that all these companies, that the 2,000 companies surveyed, they were missing uh, some key components to be able to innovate. What were those components? Is it resources? Is it people? Is it skills, knowledge? Um, information? What, what is it that uh, they're missing? I think first and foremost, it's awareness. So, uh, I mean, it's just like uh, Alcoholics Anonymous without any other comparison, right? That uh, step number one is awareness. If you don't have awareness about your existing situation, then you cannot change. It's exactly the same when we talk about innovation. I, 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 most companies do not have the awareness on uh, what exactly is innovation, how do we need to design for innovation, what are the barriers within the immune systems that may be holding us back, how can we design against that. If you don't have the awareness, then you cannot make the change. That that is, I mean, very simply, I mean, it's not simple to fix, but very simply, it's the it's the starting point here. That's why uh, the first part of my book is called Shop and the Axe, and why it's about doing the research, asking the foundational questions as to who you are. Because if you don't have that uh, understanding, uh, then uh, then you cannot make proper strategy. So uh, again, as I said before, there's, there's no one with a bigger, ch- bigger chance of succeeding with the innovation initiatives than the legacy organizations because they have so many resources. It comes down to mindset and it comes down to the design and how they choose to go about it. Um, that is the core. And I mean, you've you've worked with this in more than 15 years uh, on innovation and strategy in large corporations and legacy uh, organizations. And I mean, you mentioned a few of them uh, in in terms of seeing any major hurdles and challenges that they all kind of have in common. And I and I know you mentioned lack of awareness of the actual kind of uh, what innovation is and how they should be innovating. And then the company immune systems. Are there any other things that you've been seeing? And maybe even more interestingly, have you seen that these challenges are different today uh, or more pressing today as they were maybe 15 or 20 years ago? Well, uh, to take the last part first, yes, it's certainly more pressing now. And the reason is because the pace of change is accelerating. And that, and that means that what, one, one core barrier, which is also part of the organizational immune system, is you know legacy IT, legacy uh, structures, legacy processes. And uh, I, I don't think there's anyone working in yeah, a, a company with doesn't even necessarily have to be that long a history who isn't aware of the issue with legacy IT, and 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 the 
the barriers it creates for innovation because you as a company are so dependent on your or, or legacy production uh, apparatus as well, right? Because you're so dependent on it, of course, to produce and the costs typically are massive for changing. And so as technology develops and as your opportunities continue to grow and as, and, and as that goes faster and faster, uh, that is why I, I talk about the notion of needing to augment the augmenting mo uh, innovation, which is upgrading the core of the company, which is about continuously leveraging and utilizing technology to upgrade the core of your organization um, and how important that is. And I mean, take a look at a, a company like Google, who, which is what, 20 years old? is already into like the third transformation or something right going from search to ads to breaking up into alphabet to become who knows exactly what and maybe multiple things but you know going into understanding the need to be mobile first and even being late to that game to to now talking about we need to be ai first and we need to transform the organization to be ai first so, so that's a 21-year-old 20 20 uh, organization. And then think about you know, companies that are hundreds of years old or you know, there are many, many companies who are successful today but who really basically run on 40, 50-year-old technology that, is, that are huge inhibitors to them and makes it very difficult for them to upgrade the core, which is why they, in some instances, perhaps... Uh, while they need to continue to try to upgrade the core, they also need to start challenge the core, which bring, uh, leads us to the mutating innovations. And uh, and they say that culture eats strategy for breakfast. I, I think a lot of people have heard this, and and I don't know if it's a myth or not, but it seems to be the case in most of the. Uh, you mentioned Google and and a lot of the other technology companies that we see blossoming, especially out of Silicon Valley. Um, it just seems like culture is a very key part, central to driving innovation and 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 basically just attracting the best talent, which is key to innovation. Um, but do you have any culture hacks that we might use to build a better culture for innovation? Yeah, I do. And in fact, there's a lot of those, which is uh, the really good news, I think. Uh, culture is absolutely key. And, and uh, particularly when we talk about the uh, augmenting innovations where we are upgrading the core of the organization, because... What, what happens here is this is where we, we see the automa automations, for instance, in organizations, meaning that the jobs need, needed to be done inside companies change dramatically. And, and very often as we automate, what happens is that human beings need to sort of move up the ladder, if you like, in terms of having more uh, supervisory roles and less uh, hardcore production roles because technology will start to, to take that over. And that means that we as human beings as we utilize technology more and more inside our companies, we need to be able to adapt to that. And that calls for a, a culture of innovation where everybody is comfortable with that type of change. And uh, that is one of the key challenges, really, when we talk about culture and legacy organizations, because most legacy organizations have a status quo culture. There is a, we have a lot of biases in our brains. One of them is the status quo bias, which means that we would rather not lose than win. Mm -hmm. uh, and that calls for, a, you know, let's stay with the status quo unless it's like really obvious for why we should do something else. And, and, and thus what companies need to do 
is to try and transform the status quo culture into a culture full of uh, what I call incremental innovators, which means people who are comfortable with change within certain boundaries. So it's not the radical innovators who are comfortable you know, without boundaries, which we see overrepresented as founders of startups, you know, who collect their pensions and put them all in a company that most likely will fail and they love it, right? Mm -hmm. And most of us aren't like that, and that's perfectly fine. But what we need to be is comfortable with change and comfortable with continuous development. And our status quo cultures aren't built for that. And there's a very, uh, I think, profound study that I think shows us why that is so. Uh, it's, um, it, it, it's a longitudinal study that was conducted over almost 20 years uh, by an American researcher called George Land. And what he did was that he tested children and adults for what is called divergent thinking. So divergent thinking is the ability to come up with truly original ideas. And uh, so that, of course, is core for creativity and innovation. And uh, he tested 1,600 children at the age of four to five. And what he found out was that 98% of the four to five-year-old children were uh, creative geniuses. So they were masters at divergent thinking. And uh, when they did a control group of 280,000 adults, they found that only 2% of adults were creative geniuses. So oh my that God. Is, that is <laughs> that's just, so sad. That's just incredible, isn't it? <laughs> it is. And, yeah, it hurts a little bit. <laughs> it hurts so bad. Yeah. That is that is just horrible to hear. But I mean what what I mean, I guess we can't really go into what happens with us from we're children to adults. I guess school happens basically. But yeah. uh how do you teach adults to think more like kids again? Yeah, but I think that's the point, really. School happens, right? Our, our institutions happen because already when uh, children had reached the age of 10, uh, where they did the next control uh, group, uh, their uh, creative genius statuses had fallen from 98% to 30%. So that's a really uh, large drop in a very short amount of time. Oh. It, so it tells us two things. It tells us that our systems and our school systems are designed to make us unlearn our creativity, make us unlearn divergent thinking. The opposite of divergent thinking is convergent thinking. This is where we are critical towards ideas, which is also an incredibly important skill set. And you cannot, uh, you cannot have innovation without both divergent and convergent thinking. But the problem is that our institutions, they teach us to almost exclusively focus on convergent thinking, being critical towards the new and we need a much better balance and so that is why uh, and unknowingly uh, i think in most cases our institutions over many many years have sort of made us unlearn our creative powers but if we can unlearn we can also relearn and that is why you know there's hope and that is why the, it is actually possible to change your culture it is a, it's, it is actually possible to change your culture from the status quo culture to a culture full of uh, innovators. And you can do that with culture hacks and, uh, and you can invent many, many of those. And most of them are even free. It's not about money. Again, it's about mindset and, and innovation design. And, and, and uh, those culture hacks are both about, you know, how you design your physical environments. It's, there's loads of research out there that shows that exactly how our office spaces, for instance, are designed has massive implications for our productivity, for our well-being, and for our innovation 
uh, abilities as well. Exactly. I believe you said that uh, the uh, open office landscape is the worst innovation in mankind for for productivity, at least. Yeah, it's it's good for light conversation and coffee drinking, right? Which is also <laughs> important, but not really for deep thinking or uh, or or innovation. So, but what you need in offices is. Uh, multiple opportunities, right? So what you need is the ability to go somewhere to focus. You need to the ability to go somewhere to meet other people. That is, you know, Steve Jobs was famous of creating these water cooler environments, right? Because if people meet each other randomly during the day, they strike up different types of conversations. They get to know each other. They they start innovating together. That is also important. You need the open spaces to to sit and be a, be a be uh, you know see other people and have conversations and you need the meeting spaces to to go in and work as a team you know i had one person come up to me after i i, I did a talk uh, a, a while back and he said well my number one innovation challenge is i can't book a meeting room and and you know i, I think everybody uh, in in corporate world understands this problem i mean it's so hard to book a meeting room they are in <laughs> because we don't have enough of them, right? Yeah. And it's it's um, it's such a simple problem. But if you cannot if you cannot book a meeting room and meet up with your team, that's a foundational challenge for actually working together. That that needs to be solved. So we need much more dynamic uh, workspaces in in order to support innovation in our organizations. And then we need to also to make them fun and creative. Use colors. Have plants. Uh, have art on the walls, uh, all of these types of things that also stimulate our brains and actually make us more curious and thus also more innovative. Yeah, exactly. And, and I mean, it sounds, when you put it like that, it sounds so easy. Uh, just, you know, kind of get some colors up and and uh, put people together and perhaps create a, a few more meeting rooms and then you and then you have it. But obviously there's there's a lot more culture hacks to that and I'm sure that people can read about that in your book. But I want to shift gears a little bit because I want to talk about, um, or at least briefly, diversity because I know that that's something you are passionate about as well. I'm yeah. very passionate about diversity and I speak about that at SU. But what role do you think the makeup of our workforce or the, the makeup of any company's employees play into innovation? Uh, why should companies be focusing on that as well as culture yeah i think there are two parts to this i mean one thing is to ensure diversity in the workplace i think is just basically foundationally from an ethical and moral standpoint the right thing to do mm. we we have huge diversity issues also in the nordic countries where we pride ourselves of our openness and our inclusivity we are uh, we are actually not very good at diversity and not nearly as good as, as we think we are. Uh, and that one, one is gender, uh, which is perhaps the most obvious uh, thing around diversity. But I think also in very homogenous cultures, such as the Nordic cultures, uh, we are uh, not very good at being inclusive towards other cultures uh, and people who do not necessarily speak our languages. And, and that is increasingly important. Uh, for business purposes as well. Uh, studies show that uh, diversity in teams increases um, innovation power. And the reason that it does that is because uh, simply because putting people together with different types of backgrounds also means that they have different perspectives on things and thus that they will 
to a larger degree challenge each other and to a lesser degree move into groupthink where everybody sort of agrees on the same viewpoints really fast. Exactly. And and then there's the report from BCG uh, that showed from a very extensive uh, set of companies that the companies that score the highest on at least ethnic diversity uh, derive 38% more of their profits from innovative products and services compared to other companies over the past three years. So there's a growing amount of data pointing to the benefits diversity has on innovation. Um but uh, Chris, unfortunately, we are running out of time, though this has been absolutely fascinating. And we have three standard questions that I want to ask you before uh, I uh, let you off the hook. If you could give your 20-year-old self two pieces of advice, what would they be? <laughs> right. That's a really tough one, I think. But I, I think one of them is that be sure that whatever you do and whichever sitting you are in, that be sure that you surround yourself with people that are smarter than you. I, uh, I saw this interesting documentary about Michael Jackson at some point, and obviously he was a genius, a musical genius, right? And I'm pretty sure he was born a big talent. But what, uh, what is also interesting about him is that ever since he was, I don't know, two, three years old, uh, growing up in Motown, uh, he was surrounded by the best musicians in the world all the time. And I'm pretty certain that has uh, played a major impact in him also being such a significant uh, force that he was. And, and, and I think too many of us um, uh, stay within our comfort zones and uh, don't engage to a large enough degree with people who are different from ourselves and uh, who are also, if you like, smarter than ourselves on topics that we don't know about. But, mm. but challenging ourselves to, uh, to be in spaces like that uh, really make a significant uh, difference. And um, I wish I had been aware about that uh, at a much earlier age. That was only one, right? That was only one. Oh, damn. <laughs> Do you have another one? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I probably relax a little bit more. It'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, that's. I think that's a very, very key point. Uh, and what's your favorite podcast? Uh, my absolute favorite podcast is Waking Up with Sam Harris. Oh, me too. I love that podcast. He is he is amazing. Yeah. And finally, Chris, where should people go to follow you? Uh, yeah, so I'm. Uh, I've deleted. I haven't deleted, but I've stopped using my Twitter account. So uh, the best place to find me is on LinkedIn and uh, uh, and on Facebook. Thank you so much again, Chris, for calling in from Copenhagen to enlighten us with your fantastic uh, knowledge on innovation. Thank you. And thank you to the listeners for listening to Future Forecast. Tune in next week for more insights and expert tips on technology, leadership, and sustainability. I'm your host, Isabel Rignos. 